Welcome back to the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, hosted by yours truly, a psychologist, Dr. Colby Taylor. And I introduced myself as a psychologist, but I'm wondering if most people know what that really means. I mean, it seems like a super basic question, but the answer to what is a psychologist is actually sort of complex. It was something I didn't know the answer to as an undergrad psych major. I really didn't know what a psychologist was. Uh, anyways, if you add the suffixologist onto something, it means you study it, right? So psychology literally means the study of the mind. And if you study the mind, you should be a psychologist, right? I mean, biologists study life, zoologists study animals, mycologists study funguses or fungi, and so on. So you're listening to this podcast, and technically you're studying psychology, so you can go off to your friends and your family and call yourself a psychologist, right? Um, the answer is no, or at least not unless you want to leave yourself open to a lawsuit. So as far as I can tell, anyone can call themselves a biologist, or anyone can call themselves a philosopher. It's not the same with the term psychologist, though. Uh, the term or word psychologist is what we call a protected term. It's protected by law. So a question I'm asked sometimes is if Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil McGraw, you know, the TV personality or therapist or whatever, is he a psychologist? First off, Dr. Phil can call himself Dr. Phil because he does have a doctorate degree. Uh, so we're all good with that one. Uh, in fact, he has a doctorate in clinical psychology. He has a PhD from the University of North Texas. So all good there. Um, I've always liked the University of North Texas's mascot, by the way. Uh, they're the mean green. I think that's super cool. Uh, but anyways, I digress, as usual. Um, so Dr. Phil, he has a doctorate in psychology. Duh, he should be able to call him a psych himself a psychologist, right? Um, but it's not so simple. He actually can't call himself a psychologist because he's not currently licensed as a psychologist. Or at least he hasn't been licensed since 2006, as far as I can find. So as of right now, Dr. Phil is a doctor, but is not a psychologist. And if you watch his show, he's really good about not calling himself a psychologist. He probably makes his guests sign a waiver saying that this doesn't constitute a clinical relationship or something like that. Uh, he's basically just giving advice on TV. And anybody can give advice, you know, with the First Amendment and everything. And this is sort of the basis of the whole life coach phenomenon. As far as I know, anyone can call themselves a life coach. Uh, we can ask the same thing about Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Uh, anyways, weird to say. But she has the Ask Dr. Laura program on satellite radio. Uh, she is a doctor. Um, she earned her PhD from Columbia University. Uh, but her doctorate is not in psychology or counseling. It's in physiology. And it's on working with rats. So she's not a psychologist. But she is a therapist. And she can call herself a therapist because she has a graduate degree in marriage and family counseling, in addition to her PhD in physiology. So she's an MFT, a marriage and family therapist. Uh, she's also a licensed therapist in the state of California, but she's not a psychologist. So doctor, yes. Therapist, yes. Counselor, yes. Psychologist, no. Anyways, one of the happiest days of my life was the day I graduated with my PhD in psychology, in school psychology to be more specific. It was in August of 2015, 
And right after I got off the stage from getting my degree, a photographer took my picture and I'm looking at the photo right now and I was smiling and I was understandably happy. But walking off that stage with my diploma in hand with a doctorate degree in psychology, was I a psychologist? And from the Dr. Phil example, you're probably correctly saying, no, I wasn't a psychologist. Getting your doctorate, whether it's a PhD or a PsyD, and maybe I can do an episode on the differences between the PhD and the PsyD if there's enough interest. Um, Getting that degree is just one hoop you have to jump through to be able to call yourself a psychologist. Um, I guess I can briefly outline the other hoops that I had to jump through. Uh, So anyways, you complete an undergrad degree. Um, I majored in psychology and I minored in philosophy, as I mentioned on the last episode, but you don't have to major in psychology to go to grad school in psychology. That's sort of a a secret. I knew folks that were English majors or biology majors or computer science majors who ended up getting doctorate degrees in psychology and getting into doctorate programs straight out of undergrad. Uh, But obviously, it helps to have taken a psychology course or psychology courses as an undergrad. Then, okay, after undergrad, you get into graduate school, and a lot of folks are surprised to hear that you can go straight from your undergrad program into a doctoral program. What happens in these sorts of programs is that you pick your master's degree up along the way. Or you can also go from undergrad into a master's program, and then you can transition from that master's program into a doctoral program. So the whole journey can be kind of confusing in addition to the terms that we're talking about. Anyways, I got into a doctoral program, and in doctoral programs, you usually take like 12 to 15 hours of coursework per semester. And then you also are completing an assistantship that might be 20 hours or so per week. And an assistantship could be working in a psych lab or working for a counseling center or something like that. And then each year, you also complete a practicum experience, which is like a field experience. And this usually involves like 10 or so hours per week. So we're talking about a full-time schedule. All right. Anyways, after two years of classes and practicum placements, you usually do a master's thesis. And the master's thesis involves a research project. And as part of the research project, you have to do both a proposal and a defense. So for the proposal, you write up a literature review and a method section, and you have to orally defend your proposed research project in front of a handful of faculty members. Super intimidating, right? And these faculty members, they either approve or reject your proposal. And usually they approve your project, uh, but they might make some minor changes. Anyways, then you can go off and you can collect your data. And after you collect your data, you analyze it, and then you write up your results, and then you write up a discussion section. And then this is your master's thesis. And this could be 30 pages long. It could be 300 pages long. It's a pretty long document. And then you come back in front of the faculty for your thesis defense. And again, they can approve or reject your defense. And if you pass, your thesis, along with the coursework you've completed, usually gets you your master's degree. So this is like two or three years into your graduate career at this point. Um, After that, you take more coursework. Coursework. uh, Freudian slip there. Uh, You take more coursework. And then at most programs, you have to do uh, um, what we call doctoral comps, which are comprehensive exams. Although many programs are phasing doctoral comps out in favor of doing another master's thesis-like project. Uh, Anyways, doctoral comps usually involves written exams. Um, So faculty will come together and they can basically test you on anything from graduate school. 
And for my comps, I was sort of locked in a room for two days to take my written portion. I mean, yeah, I got to go home and go to sleep after the day, but yeah, pretty much locked in a room and typed out probably 20 pages of answers to these uh, comprehensive exam questions. Anyways, anything from graduate school is fair game. Uh, and then if that's not intimidating enough, there's also an oral defense portion. So if you pass your written test, then you go in front of the faculty panel again, and they can orally ask you any sort of question from your graduate studies. Uh, so that's comps. And if you pass your comprehensive exams, then you call yourself a doctoral candidate. And then that's when the real fun begins, because you begin working on your dissertation. And this is usually four or so years into your graduate career at this point. And just like your master's thesis, you propose your research project, you collect data, and then you come back and you defend your project. Except it's usually like a master's thesis on steroids because it's longer and it's more complex. And then if you're going the clinical route for your fifth year, you apply for a pre-doctoral internship. And this is sort of like a residency for medical school. You go through what's called the match process. So you might apply to a dozen or so different programs, and then you might get interviews at a few of these programs. Uh, almost always, these internship sites aren't in the same location where you're doing your graduate program uh, work. So you're going to travel across the country interviewing, and you have no idea where you're going to spend your next year. Uh, so it's super stressful. Um, after all of these interviews, you rank the places that interviewed you, and the places that interviewed you also rank you, and then a computer program combines that all together. And then on match day, which is usually in February, the computer spits out where you'll be spending the next year. And this is if you're one of the lucky few, uh, not one of the lucky few, but one of the lucky ones that matches with the site. Uh, because there are more applicants than sites. So a lot of people don't match. Um, it's a crisis in our field. I think about 85% of people match, but that's still 15% of people that don't match. And these people that don't match, they have to sit out a year or wait until the next round of matches. And this is a huge bummer because you've done like four or five years of hard work up until this point, only to hit a giant roadblock. And it's sad because some people have invested all of this time and all of this money into their degrees. And sometimes they don't match two or three times in a row. And sometimes after all of this coursework and all of this research, they, they just give up. They pack it in and they find a new career. We're eight years removed from starting your undergrad career at this point. Um, okay, but in our example, all of the things are going well. And so for your internship year, you will have matched and you're going to move somewhere. And over the course of the next year, you're going to complete 2000 hours of supervised clinical training. And here you're basically practicing what you've been learning in graduate school under the supervision of licensed psychologists. And if you do the math, 2,000 hours is essentially a full-time job, like 50 weeks at 40 hours per week. Um, I did my internship in Hawaii. So when you hear me talking about Kauai and Hawaii, that's where the connection comes in. All right. So if everything goes according to plan with your master's thesis proposal and thesis defense, your doctoral comps, written and oral portions, your doctoral dissertation proposal and your doctoral dissertation defense, and if you pass your eight semesters of graduate coursework, you also match for internship and you end up successfully completing that internship, congratulations. You get to walk across the stage and get your doctoral degree in psychology. And so this is where smiling post-graduation Colby comes in. Uh, now Dr. Colby. 
Uh, but of course, even after all of these hoops, um, I'm not a psychologist at this point. In fact, I'm far from it. So after you get your PhD, you complete a supervised clinical postdoctoral experience, a postdoc. And it's usually 2,000 more hours of supervised training. So it's another calendar year of working under a licensed psychologist. At least in this stage, though, you're getting paid some. Uh, not as much as a fully licensed psychologist, but you're getting paid. And I forgot to mention, you're getting paid for your pre-doctoral internship, too. Uh, but usually the stipends aren't that much. It's like $1,500 to $2,000 a month. Anyways, so you do your clinical postdoctoral experience, and then you end up paying hundreds of dollars to take what's called the EPPP. The EPPP stands for the Examination for Professional Practice in Psychology. And some people also pay thousands of dollars for prep classes for the EPPP. And the EPPP is a test that covers assessment and therapy and ethics and statistics and all sorts of knowledge relevant to the professional practice of psychology. And now they're actually making an EPPP2, which would be yet another hurdle uh, to jump over, or hoop to jump through. I'm mixing up my analogies here uh, to become a psychologist. Anyways, the pass rate for the EPPP is about 85%. Uh, but I've seen some people that have taken it four or five times and can't pass. And after all of this, they, again, end up packing it in and finding a new career. Um, but let's say you pass. Hooray. Um, you've completed your year of postdoc. You passed the EPPP. Then you can apply for licensure to your state licensing board. And most boards have an ethics and jurisprudence exam. So another hurdle for you to jump over. Um, and if you fail this ethics exam... I uh, usually only have to wait a couple of months to take it again. Uh, but the licensing board is also charging you for your application. And so that's usually another couple of extra couple of hundred, hundreds of dollars or whatever. Who's keeping track at this point, right? You're just throwing money everywhere. Um, then if you pass that, you go on to the board of examiners in your state for approval for licensure. And if you're approved for licensure, congrats. Uh, you can finally call yourself a psychologist. Uh, at least in that specific state. So it's a long journey. And hopefully I didn't scare you off from wanting to become a psychologist. Uh, but the journey brings up a few important questions. And one is, do you have to have a doctorate degree to call yourself a psychologist? And the answer to this is surprisingly, not always. So you can get your master's in educational specialist degree in school psychology, which is three years of post-undergrad work. And in most states, you can call yourself a psychologist when you're working in the schools. Uh, but you can only call yourself a psychologist or specifically a school psychologist when you're employed and working in the schools. So it's a restricted term. When you leave the school building, your psychologist hat comes off. So that's a case where you can sort of call yourself a psychologist without a doctoral degree. Now, IO, or industrial and organi organizational psychology, is also a little bit different. Because most people in IO don't have a doctoral degree or, or doctorate degree. But in certain situations, they might be able to call themselves an I.O. psychologist. But again, the practice here is very limited in scope. Um, another question is, do you have to practice clinically to call yourself a psychologist? And the answer to this is no. Uh, most of my colleagues at the university aren't clinically licensed, but they can call themselves psychologists or research psychologists while they're employed at the university. Now, this doesn't mean that they can practice clinically. Uh, but they are allowed to use whatever title the university bestows on them while they're working for the university. And this sort of segues into the American Psychological Association's Model Act for Licensed Psychologists. So we have psychologists who are health service providers, who are what we call HSPs. 
And health service providers are clinically licensed. They're the ones that provide therapy and assessment and that sort of thing. And then we have general applied psychologists. And these are folks that provide services outside of the health and mental health fields. So a research psychologist at a university or a psychologist that's employed by a lab, they can call themselves a research psychologist or a scientific psychologist, even though they're not clinically licensed. Uh, the psychology police aren't going to bust down their door. Uh, now, I guess technically for me, if I were to travel 15 miles south of my house to Mississippi or to Arkansas, if I were to travel west, I'm not licensed in those states. So I'm magically no longer a psychologist then. I mean, I could call myself a psychologist that's licensed in the state of Tennessee, but I can't pre uh, like legally practice in Mississippi or Arkansas without going through the licensure process there. Um, you might ask, like, what happens if you call yourself a psychologist and you're not really a psychologist? Uh, at least in Tennessee, that's a class B misdemeanor. And you're also being like really deceptive with people. And these people can probably sue you. So it's not good to go around calling yourself a psychologist if you're not a psychologist. Um, geez, anyways, this has been a really long-winded episode to a really simple question, right? So you don't have to be a doctor to call yourself a psychologist. But if you are a doctor in psychology, you can't always call yourself a psychologist. And it's just really complicated. Anyways, uh, let's check the mailbag. So I do have one mailbag email. And the email honestly made my week. And uh, here's what the email said said, I found your Abnormal Psychology podcast on Spotify. I'm a psychology major at so-and-so university, and I'm emailing you because I want you to know that you don't need mailbag questions to make episodes. All caps, I need you to make episodes about everything. I want to know everything, exclamation point. Um, I'm currently taking Abnormal Psych and reading a book, and it's hard for me, but listening to you on the way home from work every day, um, I gain so much knowledge, so thank you. Again, make episodes about everything, any topic. Um, also, I think you might be becoming my idol. Awesome. Um, anyways, thank you for the podcast. So I love eating mail like this. Um, for the mailbag, you can send questions or comments or episode requests or whatever to ctaylo41 at cb.edu. Uh, just put the subject line as mailbag and I promise I'll respond to it. Uh, anyways, that's it for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.